Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. On the show this week, ENRC, the FTSE 100 miner implodes. In an almost unprecedented display, two of the most prominent of the non-executive directors, Sir Richard Sykes and Ken Olisa, were voted off by a margin of about 84%. Greenpeace continues its campaign to try and kick oil companies out of the Arctic. The Greenland government itself is rather enthusiastically pro-drilling. It sees this as a possibility to get oil revenue in the future, and that oil revenue could be used to consolidate independence from Denmark. And energy prices in the UK. I think no one was surprised that the energy companies were starting to raise their prices. The scale of it, I have to say, took a lot of people by surprise. And it was a staggering amount. 19% on the gas price was way beyond expectations. Let's start this week's show with an extraordinary 10 days for ENRC, the Kazakh miner listed on the London Stock Exchange. After a very eventful annual general meeting last Wednesday, where two of the company's non-executive directors were voted off the board, the blame game over what's been going wrong is still continuing. Now, joining me in the studio to discuss what it's all about is William McNamara, the FT's mining correspondent. William, I just wondered if you could give us a sort of very short overview as to what's been going on at ENRC. I know it's it's, it's a difficult thing to do because there's been a lot going on. It's a Kazakh mining company that is owned 45% by um, three very wealthy and successful Central Asian entrepreneurs. Despite the block of their shareholding, they only have one representative on the board. None of them have an executive role. None of them sit on the board. What's been happening for um, between six months and 12, depending on who you ask, is that tensions between these three founding shareholders and their own desires for how the company should look and act have come up against the desires of the board, which sits in London and has 14 people, including some of the most notable names in the city of London. People like Sir Richard Sykes, the former chief executive. Sir Richard Sykes, the former chief executive of GlaxoSmithKline. Ken Aliza, who is a noted technology entrepreneur. Sir Paul Judge, who is a veteran of the foods industry. When ENRC floated in 2007, it attracted just as much skepticism about the so-called dodginess factor, corporate governance issues, as many other companies on the exchange. But what made investors come around to it is the idea that uh, very grand and, and respectable people in the city could vouchsafe this company to them. About six months ago, it seems that strategic directions over how the board should act and where the company should go erupted into something very vicious because people sitting on the London board say, you can't do it that way. We're here to defend corporate governance. And they accuse the founders of treating the company essentially as if it is still a private company, as if it is their private domain and steamrolling over the role of the board that they decided they would have. These very non-execs, these same non-execs were voted off the board. So, so Richard Sykes exactly. was voted off the board last week and Ken Elisa was also voted off. Yeah, so what happened, uh, it finally came to a head when there was a normal annual gener- general meeting of ENRC. Non-executive directors are routinely put up 
uh, to be voted back onto the board, and unless they retire or something is extraordinarily wrong with them, uh, they will be re-voted on. So in an almost unprecedented display, two of the most prominent of the non-executive directors, Sir Richard Sykes and Ken Olisa, were voted off by a margin of about 84%. That represented the shareholding blocks of the three founders and the government of Kazakhstan. So essentially, they were sacked by the founders. And what's been happening since? I think, if I'm right, Ken Lisa hit out saying that he couldn't operate on a board the way that was structured. And we had a story, the FDA story today, from Moskevich, the, the Rus- one of the Russian um, entrepreneurs, mm. hitting back at that, the letter. There's been an extraordinarily public and bitter tit-for-tat going on, uh, largely through the media. It's a blame game between the directors who were sacked and Alexander Mashkevich, who's widely thought to be the most involved and perhaps powerful of the three founding shareholders. Within hours of Elisa losing the vote, he circulated about a four-page letter to the press saying, among other things, that the board was incredibly dysfunctional, that the chairman was a lackey of the founding shareholders, that it was not working, that it was unjust why he was kicked off. Now, yesterday, Alexander Mashkevich, who until now has been a very private figure, to the point that he's often called a sort of shadowy oligarch. He submitted a a very unusual five-page rebuttal of all these claims, saying, in fact, I am the guardian of corporate governance, and essentially all you city folk were squabbling, and our board was factionalized on its way to ruin, and I needed to take measures into our own hands. So what we're left with is a um, company that's in the grip of a profound leadership crisis. At the moment, there's no chief executive. The company has no chief executive. So what do you think the future is? A new chief executive needs to be found that the city trusts. After all, this company is still owned by the London market, regardless of where the shareholders sit. There needs to be a new chairman. The current chairman, Johannes Siddard, has come under very particular criticism and the letters of the departed directors. And some arrangement needs to be made with the board where the real power centers behind the company are represented on the board. That not only includes the three founders, but also Kazakhmis, the rival Kazakh mining company that is the largest shareholder in ENRC. And what does this all mean for corporate governance in London? Um, I mean, have the fund managers who bought into the company when it listed, have they been up in arms about it or have they been relatively quiet? There are different views. One of the more surprising things about this company is how... um, shallowly held it is in London. It is a FTSE 100 company, one of the 100 most valuable companies on the London Stock Exchange. But over 80% of the shares are held by five different entities, none of which... um, none of which are institutions in the city of London. So your array of fund managers and such who who kind of keep things kosher in the eyes of the market, they have well less than 20%. So the reaction has been more muted than you might expect. The other point of view is that regardless of the, the brouhaha happening in the boardroom, this is and always has been an extremely profitable company. From a profit and loss point of view, it's a decent investment. And so some investors are being very dispassionate about it and saying this company has allowed itself to be undervalued and that's why we're sticking with it. Thank you very much. Let's move to Greenland and the battle the oil company Can Energy is having with the environmentalists from Greenpeace. Can Energy, one of Europe's largest independent oil and gas explorers, has been battling with protesters trying to disrupt its drilling operations in Greenland, one of the last untapped oil and gas basins in the world. Now, last week, the company applied for an injunction against Greenpeace, which it has actually since won. One of our correspondents, Chris Thompson, was on the Greenpeace boat last week, and this is what he had to say. 
I'm floating in the middle of the Davis Strait at the moment in Canadian waters, uh, surrounded by melting ice sheets and having the odd polar bear come up and curiously examine the boat. We are a couple of hundred miles away from the Leif Erikson rig, one of the principal rigs that Care Energy is using to drill for gas about 80 miles off the coast of Greenland. The campaign that Greenpeace has launched has two prongs. The first is a kind of more general anti-climate change and anti-frontier oil prong, which for those reasons is against drilling in a climate such as the Arctic, the thinking goes that, well, if the Arctic is, is open for business, then, then nowhere is sacred given the Arctic's you know, pristine environment and kind of ultimate frontier status. The other prong so far has focused on Cairns' refusal to release its full oil spill response plan. Cairns claims that this is because the Greenland government won't let it, and so Greenpeace are now battling a injunction in a Dutch court because its ships are registered in Amsterdam, um, trying to get Cairn to release the full oil spill response plan, whilst Cairn is trying to impose fines of, I think it's 2 million euros a day uh, for every day that Greenpeace disrupts its operations. Greenpeace lawyers have also, I understand, launched a complaint to the ombudsman in the Greenland parliament as seeking to see the full documents of what would happen in the event of a Macondo-type oil spill here. Macondo is obviously the BP spill that happened last year in the Gulf of Mexico. And, and what's Cairns sort of been saying to defend itself against this? They have released some documents which constitute a, uh, allegedly part of their oil spill response plan, but the full documents have yet to be released, uh, apparently, because the Greenland, there are sensitivities with the Greenland government about releasing it. I'm not quite sure what those sensitivities are or if can can comment on that. It is fair to say, though, that the Greenland government itself is rather enthusiastically pro-drilling. It sees this as a possibility to get oil revenue in the future, and that oil revenue could be used to consolidate independence from Denmark, which remains kind of Greenpeace's elder brother, as it were, when it comes to military matters and foreign affairs. What are the people like on, on the ship? Are these the Greenpeace activists? Are they disaffected students? Are they sort of long-time activists and, and real passionate environmentalists? Or is it a real mix of, of people? It's quite surprising. I mean, I mean, there, there are a fair share of kind of seafaring hippies, but actually most are really quite a diverse kind of range from the professional spectrum. We've got doctors, engineers, cooks, rock stars and builders. I mean, re- really kind of take your pick. It's more like a Benetton advert for the concerned citizenry of the environment rather than the kind of stereotype of uh, hippies on a boat. That was Chris from the Greenpeace boat last week. And to our final topic for today, electricity and gas prices in the UK. Last week, Scottish Power announced it is to increase its gas prices by 19% from August and electricity prices by 10%. The scale of the rise took everyone by surprise. Earlier I spoke to Adam Scorer from Watchdog Consumer Focus about the situation. Was the announcement from Scottish Power, was that a big surprise for you, I mean, since you track the energy markets? I think no one was surprised that the energy companies were starting to raise their prices. The scale of it, I have to say, took a lot of people by by surprise and took the wind out of, of a lot of consumers' chests. It was a staggering amount. 19% on the gas price was way beyond expectations. What struck me was the increase on the gas price because we all know that oil has been going up but gas prices haven't really jumped by as much as oil prices have. 
Well, I mean, wholesale gas prices have risen in the past few months, but we were operating on a situation where we had a big peak in wholesale gas prices around 2008, and energy companies raised their prices significantly. Since then, we've had about a 30% drop in wholesale prices, but over that same period, energy, uh, Scottish Power's retail price will now be 30% higher than it was in 2008. So there's this huge mismatch in consumers' eyes between the price which uh, energy companies are paying on the wholesale market, which is the rationale for retail price rises, and the price that consumers are paying on their bills. So you don't think we should believe the energy companies when they say, um, you know, this is not up to us, we're just following the market trend? I think we have to recognise this is uh, the energy retailers work, you know, have to buy on a volatile commodity market, the wholesale price which they have to pay for delivery from whether it's from Norway or Russia or Qatar is not something they can control. But what we have some suspicions about is the scale and the speed with which they pass on wholesale price rises. It always appears that the energy companies have a very, very low risk appetite when it comes to passing on wholesale prices. The regulator himself said only the other day that that energy companies are much quicker to respond to high wholesale prices and pass all that risk on to consumers and much, much slower to pass on any reductions in the wholesale price. And that's the crux of the issue. Are the prices fair? Uh, do they respond too quickly to high wholesale prices? And do they do it to protect their margins? Just finally, um, Ofgem recently did a review of, of the big energy companies and, and whether these price rises were fair. And they didn't refer anything to the Competition Commission. Uh, do you think in light of yesterday's price rises, this decision should be looked at again? Well, this is going to be a big test for the strength of Ofgem's will. What they said when they announced their, their review is that they had evidence of companies behaving very badly and exploiting structural weaknesses in the energy market. And if that is confirmed by the information they've had through their consultation, that the energy companies are indeed exploiting existing structural weaknesses in the, in the energy market, then that's an issue ripe for the Competition Commission. That's what they're there for. It's not about pointing the finger and blaming companies for profiteering. It's saying the market has evolved in such a way that it's not working well, and it's not working in the interest of consumers. What pro-market, pro-competition remedies can we find to put it right? We'd like to see it go to the Competition Commission. I think consumers don't quite understand the issues, but I think they'd want to see decisive action taken so the market can run in the way a competitive market is supposed to run. That was Adam Scorer from Consumer Focus. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Adam Scorer from Consumer Focus. Chris Thompson in Greenland, and William McNamara in the studio. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filotrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.